Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Look, I know there's just a million things you need to worry about when you're dealing with cancer. You have to plan around your treatment, you have to worry about side effects, and then you gotta work with your medical team. And you also need to keep your family and friends in check. It's tough. There's just so many things you need to figure out. But there are also many solutions out there to make life easier. And that's what we're talking about today with Haryana. Haryana takes her incredible medical expertise and she's transposing it over the real world to find better ways of dealing with cancer from the time that you're diagnosed to the life after treatment. There's so much great advice here. I'm sure you're gonna love it. Yeah, Haryana, I noticed um, on Twitter that you've been, you went to the ends up pedalphone. What was that experience like? Oh, it was great. I went last year, but I didn't ride. And so this was the first time I'd been riding because I've had now two grants from the Below the Belt Pedalathon. So I went last year and just was part of a panel discussion. But this year was great because we got out early and um, did the ride, had my all of the teammates that I had. So we were on the ends up um ends up dream team and we've all been funded by the below the belt money so it was just really nice to be part of that and um it was a great feeling because there was um about more than 250 riders and um I'm not the fastest rider, um, and so it was pretty um, pretty impressive when the, the the lead pack went past. It was they were very um, speedy, and it was sort of very tight all the way through um, until the very end. So yeah, it was good, great fun to be part of it. Yeah, that's fantastic, and what a great turnout as well. Yeah, it was, and you know, good fundraising. And I think part of it, it was just really nice. We all we did another panel discussion at the end um, over lunch, and um, it was just really nice to be able to kind of you know demonstrate what we do with the funding and how we use it. And we had two people who were um, looking, one person who was looking at biomarkers for new ways of um, delivering treatments for prostate cancer, someone else who was looking at um, ways of trying to identify how people are responding early on and of course the project that I was doing was about the patient experience and their their, um, patient reported outcome measures so um, trying to to incorporate those into clinical practice so we could pick up earlier what their symptoms are so just being able to sort of explain to people that's what we do and that the trials group's not just about new treatments but it's about the whole experience and um, and just trying to make people's um, help people to be able to live longer but also live with less symptoms and sort of with better quality of life as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, uh, Haryana, tell me about the project that, that you're going to be working on, about the symptoms. What, what's what's mm-hmm. that all about? So there's been a lot of interest over the last few, uh, well, quite a long time actually, about trying to incorporate, you know, quality of life measures and patient reported outcomes into clinical practice. And it's been a bit challenging to do that because the, the measures that we use need to be, um, they need to be scored and then it's not really quite clear how you might best deliver that information back to the clinicians to make it easy for them, um, to, to incorporate that. But a few years ago, there was a, a principal study where a team in the US have done this and they actually demonstrated that by incorporating patient reported outcomes into routine practice, they'd um, increased the survival of the patients in the study as well. So it seemed that if we were looking after people 
better and being more responsive to their um, symptoms and the side effects of the treatment, then we were helping them to live longer as well. So what we're trying to do is to take a uh, an app that one of my nursing colleagues from Queensland, um, Natasha Roberts, has developed to make that available to patients with GU cancers and to get them to, to um, rate their symptoms once or twice a week while they're going through treatment and when they're on treatment breaks. Uh, and then we can look to see whether we're picking up additional information and symptoms that the clinicians aren't picking up when they're um, back in the clinic uh, and to see whether or not the patients will actually use the app and fill that out. There's a lot of um, discussion about whether people who have cancer have got sufficient digital skills and um, and willingness to, to actually engage in um, filling out, um, we're using smartphones or tablets to um, to questionnaires. So we're kind of looking at whether it's feasible for them to do that, and then what we learn from that in terms of the symptoms and how we might use that information, you know, back in clinical practice. And ideally, what we'd like to do is to be able to use this kind of information as a routine in all of ANZUP's trials in the future, so we can be a bit more responsive to um, to patients and their symptoms but also to use it to, to try and um, be incorporated into clinical practice. Yeah, that's really cool, Harriana. And, you know, it instantly makes me think that it's something that might even help people on the level of just being listened to, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that's one of the things that um, is really challenging, that the time that, that patients and, um, and families have with the healthcare professionals who are looking after them is sometimes quite limited. And um, so they may censor some of the information that they tell to the clinicians because they don't think there's time to talk about it. And this may be a way of helping us to overcome that and to actually use that, those patient-reported symptoms to better direct the conversations that clinicians and patients have when they're together to make sure that they're actually addressing the, the most important needs that people have at that particular time that they might not otherwise talk about. Yeah, that makes so much sense, Ariana. And, and and I know that's you know a huge part of clinical trials is getting a lot of feedback. I know that's mm-hmm. something that you're really passionate about. So tell me, with respect to to doing clinical trials, what are, in your opinion, some of the biggest myths and, and misconceptions that that people have about going through a clinical trial? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think really one of the biggest misconceptions is that clinical trials are only offered at the end of life or when all other treatment options have been exhausted. And that's really um, a big problem for us to try and overcome. We want people to understand that we have trials right through from prevention of cancer to surgical procedures and um, you know supportive care as well as all of the other treatments that um, might be relevant to someone. And the critical thing about it is that this is actually um, a really good way that you can ensure that you're getting the best supportive care or the best treatment options because when we do particularly randomised clinical trials, we're comparing a new or a different sort of treatment that we think might be better than the standard treatment to what would be considered the best standard care. And that standard of care is agreed on by all of the clinicians who take part in the study and the group and of members of the group. So you can be certain that you're getting the best treatments that you would be offered outside of the clinical trial as well. Plus the fact that you also often have slightly more frequent monitoring visits and follow-up because we wanted to see and track how you, you're performing or how, how the trial's 
uh, you know, the treatments that we're looking at in the trials are, are going. And so you um, have regular contact with your clinician and the research team that help to support them in the hospital as well. So you kind of get a big team um, as part of your care. Uh, in addition to um, the cancer doctors who would normally be looking after you. So they're two kind of things that um, are important to understand. I guess the other thing is that um, there are lots of uh, headlines and news about miracle breakthroughs and you know cures for cancer and things like that that we see. But often they're, um, they're headlines that are based on information before we've even tried some of these treatments in people. And so actually the time that that it takes for us to do a clinical trial and demonstrate the impact on um, the cancer development or growth and then um, even later on people's long-term survival outcomes uh, are things that um, that usually take years um, for us to, to be able to do. So it's sometimes um, we may not have the answer to a clinical from a clinical trial for three or five or 10 or even 15 years after it starts. So it's a really long-term investment on the part of the, um, the clinicians and the health professionals and, and the patients as well um, in terms of making sure that we get all of that relevant data. Yeah, Haryana, that makes so much sense. And you know what? It also makes me think about you know making decisions whether deciding whether the clinical trial is the right way for you or just deciding between different types of treatment it's such a critical time for any patient when you have to make choices about things that you don't necessarily understand what advice do you have on that front um so i think the the really important thing is to try and think about the questions that you have and what's important to you so it's really um valuable when you're talking to the health professionals that will help you make these decisions and to to walk you through that information that you understand things that are important to you so it is it really important to you that you don't have to come back to the hospital very often or is it important that you don't need to disrupt your um, working environment or that you can continue to drive as you normally would, all of those sorts of things. So the things that are valuable to your lifestyle and, and your way of living, try and be as clear as you can about that, but also then to think about the questions that you might have about the treatments and um, and what those options are. And there are some really useful tools that you might like to look up. So there are a series of question prompt lists for cancer patients who are talking to their surgeon or to a medical and or radiation oncologist and as well as um, some for um, for palliative care and these little brochures which are available from the Cancer Institute of New South Wales website um, are called question prompt lists and they are um, you can download those they're just an A4 sheet um, sort of um, divided across some panels and they have a whole series of questions which um, might just prompt you to think about things um, differently and you can go along and tick off the, the questions that you might have that you would like to ask your clinician and it just can help you remember that you need to ask when you're going into those consultations because once they get started it can be really challenging to to remember the things that you wanted to ask about and say that it's um, it's quite helpful to um, to have those sorts of questions there. And what that can also do is really focus um, the conversation that you're having with your doctor on the things that are really important to you. Um, sometimes they have a tendency to run off their kind of spiel about um, about different treatments and what the options are. 
uh, and um, that can go a lot of the conversation time. But if you can use your questions to direct them to the areas that you're most interested in knowing about, then I think that's um, that can actually be really useful for you and for them as well. Yeah, that's a, such a great point, Haryana. And you know, it also gives you an opportunity to write down answers. Because one thing I know mm -hmm. from personal experience is that you know, quite often the minute you walk out of a, a specialist appointment, you have no idea what just happened. <laughs> and that's you right. Have something to refer to, refer back to, right? Yes, and I think that's again another really interesting point. So, writing, taking notes, having someone else with you who might take notes as well is really important. Um, and can be quite helpful. The other thing that you could consider doing is um, asking them um, if you're comfortable with you audio recording the consultation. So there is some there was some work that was done in Australia maybe about 15 years ago now, but it really showed that audio recording those conversations was helpful for patients and it helped them to actually retain information and um, they could share that with their family and their friends if they wish to or their, their general practitioner to talk, you know, and they, it was a way of providing information directly from the doctor in the way, explaining it in, in that way and allowing them to review it multiple times if they wanted to and have it as a reference. And that was actually really useful for um, for patients and it meant that they spent less time calling their doctor's uh, and the hospital back trying to clarify things as well. So I would really encourage people to start asking their clinicians to do that and um, see how that goes with them. Yeah, thanks, Rihanna. That's such a great point because uh, it's also so easy to do, right? Because we, we all have you know, just a mobile phone with us. So you can just turn on the recording and then you can just listen back to it later and yeah, check out any information that you, you might have missed or then follow up with, with actually specific targeted questions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's, it's really helpful for all of those things. Cool. And Haryana, like, uh, there's a lot of like waiting and uncertainty that comes with cancer because you, you kind of constantly need tests, results, visits to the hospital or, or the specialist. Like, what do you think are some of the ways to deal with, with waiting, with this, this constant waiting for things to happen? So I guess this is really getting to the point where you're um, feeling sometimes a little bit out of control and that things um, you don't have a lot of say in when some of these things happen and, and how long you do have to wait. So I think there probably are some strategies that are helpful. Um, and actually the first one I'd say is when you're making decisions about treatment in particular, while you might feel that you want to make a decision and get moving quite quickly, Often there is time to really take a little bit of time to think and research um, what it is that you would like and um, within, and really consult with um, your general practitioner and your family and friends about talking about any concerns that you might have. I think they're in those initial stages or even when you're changing um, treatments during the whole journey, then there is time to make some of these decisions. They don't have to be made on the spot. So feeling like you can take that time is important. The other things in sort of in terms of actually coping with your, you know, the waiting time, that's a really big challenge. Uh, and I think there are definitely some ways to do that. One, I think, is working out what it is that you do to cope normally before your cancer um, experience. You know, how do you cope with uncertainty and things? Because we all have that in our lives. And, and what are the strategies that you do? And did you really find them helpful? So for some people, it may be that um, they engage in some 
uh, either moderate to more vigorous um, physical activity, so they might run or swim or go for bike rides. Other people, it might be um, something that um, is more like yoga or, um, or tai chi, those kinds of activities that can just really help you expend some of that energy and, and take you outside of your own head, if you like, and, um, and really focus you on doing something else completely that can be really helpful plus you know the feeling that you have after you've, you've, you've exercised so those endorphins can also be really helpful in helping you to manage your mood and things like that and for some people meditation is very helpful and um, I think that's a, a potentially very useful tool for people to be engaging in and others it might actually just be being able to share that experience with other people and to sort of talk about the fact that you're you might be feeling anxious and you might be feeling a bit worried and, and uncertain about things i guess sort of trying to plan the times around that where you might um, make sure that if in the lead up to another ct scan or in between waiting for the results that you don't plan to do anything that is going to add to your stress levels at that time if it's possible so maybe you know, you don't plan big meetings or, um, you know, large family events. If you can avoid them, then you're probably not really feeling like being with lots of people in an intense situation. Um, so there's some of the kind of practical things that you can do. And sometimes just having someone else to talk to about these things. So either um, a counsellor or a psychologist or pairing up with another um, person who is um, having a similar experience or has been through that. So another patient or um, cancer survivor who really understands what it's like to to be sitting with that uncertainty can be quite helpful. Um, it's one of the things that people describe a lot is that they feel that people who've not really been, not had a direct personal experience of cancer find it very challenging to understand what it's like for, for patients. That's great advice. And I, and I really like your the point that you made about going back to what worked for you before in the time of stress and uncertainty, because I think most of us just kind of lock up and go, well, this is such a you know radically new experience that you don't think of, well, what actually works for me? What, what can help me to deal with it I've already done before? So, so I think that was a great point. Yeah, because we all come to different life experiences and including our cancer experience with a whole lot of skills that we already have and that we use. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget that, that you've got those. Yes, and with a whole, whole lot of baggage as well. <laughs> and that's true too. Yes. <laughs> so, Haryana, I know um, you've done a lot of work around uh, sleep and mm -hmm. how that you know affects people both during treatment and beyond. So what can someone do to sleep better as they're going through cancer? Yeah, and so I guess, again, this is something that is it's always useful to reflect if you're starting to have sleep problems um, or you're feeling that, that that's an issue for you, that reflecting on what your sleep was like before the cancer as well. There are a lot of people in the general community who have very disturbed sleep, um, and so this may be something that is a much more glow problem for you and and the cancer's just kind of kicked it off again um, if you like so i think understanding that is really helpful if it does seem to be something that is related that has really started to emerge just around the cancer diagnosis or during your treatment then there are some really um, you know there are some things that can be quite helpful the main kind of approach for managing significant sleep disturbances really that, that's known to be effective is actually um cognitive behaviour therapy. So this is really um, training you to rethink and reframe the way that you um, you manage your sleep patterns and your expectations around that. 
and it can actually um, help you to to change the, your sleep quite substantially. Part of that is actually what we call sleep hygiene. So we kind of talk about this idea of healthy and unhealthy or unhygienic sleep. And the unhygienic sleep would be being, you know, the sorts of behaviours that people come sometimes get caught up in, in using alcohol to moderate their, their sleep patterns to help them get to sleep. But that probably means they're going to be waking up during the night and using tobacco or eating a lot before going to bed, those kinds of things. The expectation that you'll actually sleep for eight hours straight is is a common um, perception in the community. And we know that people have quite variable patterns around how long they sleep for at any given time. So the, the, the expectations can be quite important. But once people start to sort of get a little bit disturbed in their sleep, they can really describe what uh, you know, they're lying in bed for hours on end and sort of watching the clock, sleeping in to make up for, for not falling asleep to, you know, on time. And particularly if they're not waking up refreshed, those kinds of things. And what's really important is that we try and keep a fairly consistent pattern in sleep. So going to bed at a similar time, if you're lying in bed and you're just not going to sleep, then probably lying there and waiting for sleep to come is not the best thing. So giving yourself a time and saying, if I'm not asleep by this time, then I'll get up and do something else. But probably make sure that's not using your computer, television or using your iPhone or something like that because that will also, the light from all of those things will continue to disturb you. So I think it's a matter of just kind of planning that and, and seeing what you can do. And if those problems persist, then actually going to see a clinical psychologist who can actually help you um, probably within two directions uh, to, to demonstrate, to, to actually make some, some substantial changes in how your sleeping is. And I guess the other thing that sometimes happens is, particularly during when you're in hospital and having treatments, then your sleep does become disturbed because of the environment that you're in. Hospitals are not great places to sleep, which is sort of a little bit crazy given that that's what most people need to do. But you're often being woken up during the night and not getting it. So people can, uh, any of these sorts of things can start to um, put you into a poor sleep pattern and that that can kind of then over time become compounded and, and you, you just um, end up with, you know, unhealthy sleep habits. And that's partly what we're trying to, to change in, in the interventions. The other thing that we find is that sometimes the kinds of supportive care treatments that you might be taking while you're um, going through chemotherapy and other treatments might actually also impact on your um, your sleep patterns. So sometimes they might make you feel uh, very stimulated for a few days, and so you don't sleep very well. Um, and then you, you know those um, medications taper off after your treatment, and you kind of crash. So you're sort of going through this boom and and bust cycle of, of energy levels um, that are really associated with the the um, supportive care treatments that you might be taking so I think there are those aspects of it as well and and um, maybe talking to if you're finding that's the case then maybe talking to your treatment team about whether you need to take such high doses of some of these things or for the duration might actually help to, to manage some of those symptoms a little bit better as well. So the other thing I was going to say is that lots of people um, kind of think that it would, it's perfectly normal to have a sleep disturbance, you know, around the time of a cancer treat, cancer diagnosis and treatment. And so they don't tell the other eye um, things probably important that, um, that you know, if, you're, if this is what you're experiencing, then it's, it is worth talking to someone about it so that they're at least aware and, and can maybe think about whether there are some things to change. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess also we don't often think that maybe it is worth to go and see someone like a clinical psychologist, like you mentioned, who is a trained professional who can kind of help guide you through some of those um, you know, psychological and emotional challenges that, that go hand in hand with cancer. So in terms of, I guess, this kind of plays into this whole emotional and mental support that people have, do you think that people get the support that they need from from their family and their friends? Um, I think it's incredibly variable. Like, um, you know, in lots of things, people have different connections and different relationships and some of those can be more or less supportive. And particularly when you may have had a, particular, a specific role in your family where you might be the person that does the supporting most and people are not really, your family and friends may not be really sure how to support you because they're not used to doing that and, and that's not been their role in your relationship. So that can be quite challenging sometimes. And yeah, so as I said, I think it's incredibly variable and there are many people who certainly describe their family and their friends don't really understand what it's like for them. So they can, you know, they're, they're supportive and they're helpful, but actually really understanding the fear that they're living with or the concerns that they have, um, it's not quite the same thing as they find when they talk to other people who have had a cancer diagnosis and and can sort of really share that experience in a, in a different way. Yeah, that is so true, Haryana. And it also makes me think of the partners and the caregivers who, who support people through cancer because they quite often also get overlooked because I guess the focus is on the person who's going through cancer, but it's also incredibly difficult when you know, you're trying to maintain some semblance of a normal life as well. So what do you think, how, how can you find that balance between having sort of the normal life you want and also supporting someone someone you care about through this yeah. whole crazy cancer adventure? I think it's a real challenge, particularly in, in those periods of acute treatment or when people have advanced cancer. And I, and I think, again, it's remembering that it's, you know, cancer is just one part of your life. It might be a really big and important part of your life, but it doesn't, it's not everything in trying to, remember um, the relationships that you had and the connections and the things that you liked to do as either an individual or a couple or a family, then they're the sorts of things that it's worth trying to just sort of maintain um, some connection to, to those activities. And I think for particularly caregivers uh, and and partners um, of patients, it's it, that's there's a really big change because they do sometimes transition from being equal partners in a relationship to being the person who is caring for the other and, and being much more, you know, sort of feeling responsible for the decision making and, um, you know, and, and maintaining their, their life and their lifestyle. And that can be really challenging. So I think, um, recognizing sometimes that that creates shifts and conflicts, um, and, and maybe that there is a need for both the caregiver and the patient to um, to engage in talking with a counsellor or a support person who is outside of, of um, you know, can give them some uh, independent reflection on what's happening in a space to talk about those things. And also for the caregiver sometimes um, to feel that it's okay for them to talk to someone on their own as, as well to get the additional support that they might need and talk about their own fears and experiences because they spend a lot of time also 
protecting the person that they're caring for from from their own you know from their worries and not wanting to to burden them with that so finding a way whether it's through a support group or a caregiver support group the uh, cancer council's helpline is is a really good um, useful place to to try and sort uh, seek some of those or access some of those resources um, because they're really often telephone based um, supports and, and that kind of thing it could be quite helpful to do them and not contingent on them having to go to appointments or be somewhere else um, at particular times. Yeah, that's such a great point, Haryana, because yeah, you, you're so right, like the dynamic of the relationship can change, maybe even just for, for a period of time. So mm-hmm. it's really important to kind of yeah try to find the balance back again. So tell me what what happens when you actually call up the cancer cancer support line. I've never done it, and I and you know to be honest, I don't really know anyone who has done it. So I, th- I think it's such a oh, it's such an untapped resource. It's fantastic. So the um the the helpline, and I'm just trying to remember that. I think it's thirteen. 13- 132011, I think is the number. Um, and that's Australia wide. But basically you go through to, uh, you, your calls are answered by, um, people who are trained. They're, um, usually counselors or health, you know, people who have a health professional background and they can actually talk to you about what, what the needs are that you might be, um, experiencing at the moment and to sort of provide you some information about, um, what's possible. So, the initial phone call that you make is really about finding out what you need and, and then working out where to do, to refer you. So they don't necessarily offer, um, you know, counseling support on the phone immediately, but it's about planning who's the best person for you to, to get that, you know, to get access to in order to resolve those, those problems or to have someone to talk to. So they do telephone based support groups and can also connect you to face to face support groups. Um, Cancer Council also has fantastic supports like a pro bono legal team who provide advice about, you know, creating wills and how you manage, you know, power of attorney and all of those kinds of things, as well as a pro bono financial advice, advisory group as well. So people who will come and, you know, who can provide advice about having to renegotiate, um, mortgages, um, to, you know, suspend mortgage payments while you're going through treatment. Also to um, negotiate access to superannuation or, um, and some of those kinds of things that can be really quite helpful in relieving the, the, you know, the stressors on both patients and their families, um, during that, that critical period of time. So they're kind of some of the things that they do. They also have a lot of online resources so that they can direct you towards those. So, uh, things like the, the podcasts that they have, um, that have recently been done, been done, which is, um, talking with a series of, of experts on different topics and it's called The Thing About Cancer. And they're really informative, sort of 20 to 40 minutes podcasts talking about different topics and issues. So interesting, um, perspectives and, um, and really focused in great detail on a particular aspect of, uh, of care. And because Cancer Council is also right across the country and it has offices in, um, in regional areas all over the country, then they can also, they're, they're often very aware of what the local services are that are available, um, that might support, um, patients and caregivers. So they can be really helpful in, in that sense. And they do have some 
telephone based counselling as well that, that you know if that's really what you need then they can direct you towards that service particularly if there isn't something available in your cancer treatment centre and um, and locally to you as well. Yeah that sounds awesome I wish I, I wish I knew about it when, <laughs> when I had to deal with it and Ariana like let's just say you go through treatment and everything goes to plan mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully cancer is gone and you you go through a follow-up uh, regime where you, you, you go for checkups. And I think it's something that every single cancer survivor has to deal with is the whole fear of cancer coming back. Mm-hmm. So what advice do you have on dealing with that? Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I guess that that is a really big challenge. I mean, it's a problem for many many people but the critical question is well i think there are probably there are several things one is we can't tell you that your cancer will never come back and i think that's probably the hardest thing to deal with but there are ways or strategies that you can use to try and minimize the impact that that has so when as um, you know psycho-oncology health professionals we talk about fear of cancer recurrence we talk about it at different levels and so the question is is this is your fear of cancer recurrence becoming intrusive does it make you worry you know is it on your mind all the time and is it stopping you to do things that you would otherwise do because you're worrying about your cancer coming back does that kind of make sense yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. so we talk about that as being high you know a high level of fear of cancer recurrence and so some of the things we we actually within our um our psycho-oncology research group, which is a national clinical trials group like some of the other groups, um, that we focus on psychosocial and, um, and psychological interventions. We, we did do a trial where we developed an intervention. So it was delivered by clinical psychologists who were trained in this particular strategy about dealing with fear of cancer recurrence. And it did things like looked at your, um, what you thought about the cancer and how focused you were on the worry, what you understood about your your cancer and your prognosis and, and what the likely trajectory of that was, as well as some kind of mindfulness-based meditation components to help you sort of manage the, the, the worries that you might have. So there are a whole range of, of strategies that were taught to people as part of this intervention. And what we did show was that it, did, it was very effective in reducing people's fear of cancer recurrence and keeping that at a lower level over a six to 12 month period. So it was, um, you know, a, a five or six week intervention that people did and it actually helped them to reduce their worry long term, um, in that sort of the first year or so after they, um, they had done the intervention. So we know that they're, if you have very high levels of fear of recurrence, there's some of the things that can actually really help. And I guess one of the challenges is that we still know that, that lots of people are really worried about accessing psychological support and care and that they would say to us if we refer, you know, so you suggest that they might want to see a psychologist or a counsellor, but they're not, they're not mad and they're not crazy. So they don't need that help. And I guess one of the key messages that it's really important for people to understand is that psychology is actually about strategies to help you cope a lot of the time. So it's to work out your, you know, what skills you've already got in your toolkit and see what we can add to that as well that might help you cope a bit better. And often, uh, when we're dealing with people who are, uh, experiencing a high level of stress and distress, but they're not, you know, they're, they're certainly not necessarily clinically diagnosable with a, you know, a psychiatric illness or something like that. So just when someone says to you, have a chat to 
the psychologist or the, the psychosocial team, it's really about extra support and um, and extra tools to, to help you in your day-to-day life. Cool. That makes so much sense, Ariana. And so and what are some of your personal best tips for just having the life that you want after cancer? I think it's thinking about where you are now and how, where you'd like to, you know, the kinds of activity and function that you'd like to get back to and actually seeking out the support that you need to do that. So we've already talked about the fact that you kind of, you, you, you have your diagnosis and you go through your treatment and then hopefully everything's fine and you're just having your follow-up to make sure that the, the cancer hasn't come back and monitor those sorts of things. But often the treatments that you've had will have uh, quite substantial impacts on um, your physical function and certainly your ability to get back to, to day-to-day life. And people kind of talk about this idea of the new normal and uh, as being a, you know, adjusting to the changes both physically and emotionally and mentally after a cancer diagnosis and treatment. But I think the critical thing is that the new normal is something that takes a while to work out and it doesn't mean that things are going to be the same as they, you know, as they are now. So you might come out of your, your treatment, but you'll actually change again what are the things that are happening. So finding out, working out what's the thing that's most problematic for you at the moment and talking to people about where you can get help for that. So for some people it might be needing to get back on a a better nutritional track. So some people when they're going through treatment will will change their diet or they'll, they'll find that they can't eat properly or they're not interested in food because of the changes in taste and things like that. So actually working with a dietitian or a nutritionist might be quite helpful in trying to, to do some of those things and get, um, get a, a, a good dietary intake and a, and a healthy diet um, going again. Um, for other people, it might be trying to get back to exercise. So actually accessing an exercise physiologist who can kind of work out what your your level of physical function is now and, and gradually work up a program with you that will help you to increase your physical activity so you can do all of those sorts of things. So I think that's my key message is, is really is actually thinking about what are the challenges um, for you at this particular time and what's actually going to help you to overcome those challenges so that you can live the, the life that you want to live in and that you know will, will bring you a lot of pleasure and quality of life. Yeah, thank you, Haryana. That's such a great advice. Thanks so much for time, Haryana. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. Thank you. It's been fun talking to you. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time, because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast, because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with, and you don't want to go it alone. And you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. 
Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. So then there is the outcome map. Like this is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you you can, you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague, her name is Jill, her husband had prostate cancer, so uh, so he, she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times um, when you go through cancer, when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling, you're on this roller coaster of emotions, and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it, and there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want, or you can just listen to it online and, you know, and just uh, listen along with the PDF. So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one-page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, and we just talked about, you'll also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of Simplified Cancer. And listen, I'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how I'm doing here. I mean, are you getting what, you, what you're looking for? Was there something in particular that, that really made sense to you? Or is there a question that you want to ask? Or maybe there's, there's just something that you, you want to get off your chest, like, please, I need to know. Just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 